0: Well, good afternoon, and thank you very much, Michael and Al, for the opportunity to come and talk about this initial work that Alistair and I have been doing on an accounting issue which has proved quite intractable, and that's outcome budgeting. I'll start by setting the scene a bit. The work is located in the Royal Botanic Gardens, Edinburgh, where Alistair is the Director of Corporate Services. Now, there are around, somewhere over 1,600 official botanic gardens in the world. And nowadays, we get league tables produced of quality on various bases for them, as well as universities. And in these league tables, the Royal Botanic Gardens Edinburgh usually features in the top three in the world. It's a substantial organisation. It has a full scientific programme. It is an educational program which stretches from primary school teachers through to doctorates and beyond. And of course the Botanic Gardens are one of the the great tourist attractions in Scotland. Um, They're funded largely by the Scottish Government. And the Scottish Government expects them in return to offer these scientific and horticultural and educational services um, in return for the money that they get. This partnership has existed for a long time, but, and this is the reason we're presenting today, in the 1990s, a strategic dimension became a part in the, the partnership between government and the Royal Botanic Gardens. And the government started to ask the Botanic Gardens and sim- similar not public sector units to produce strategic plans. Now in the 1990s, the Botanic Gardens were run by scientists and it was very interesting to look through the past minutes of scientists' meetings discussing this issue of Producing strategic plans, which was totally alien to their scientific culture. They were so aghast that what they did was they delegated responsibility for it to the librarian. And the librarian produced and submitted the uh, strategic plans for the botanic gardens. But that couldn't go on forever. And eventually the scientists came to realise that we have to give something back if we're getting public funding. And they decided to hire a professional, Alistair, to try and develop a a coherent strategic plan for the Botanic Gardens. Um, Alistair combined doing that with a doctorate at the University of Edinburgh, which is how we met, Um, And his interventionist study, Action Research, was him producing a solution to the problem of generating strategic plans which would work for an organization such as the Botanic Gardens. Now his doctorate's complete successfully, and probably to summarize the end product of it, the solution that he produced, is this table here what he did was he produced a technique called what we call strategic objective costing he took the strategic objectives which were set by the management committee of the botanic gardens and these were things like promoting biodiversity promoting um, conservation uh, sustainability education, tourism These were the strategic objectives along the top. And he set up a new system of costing so that costs could be attributed to each of these strategic objectives. The budgeting system was put in sync with that. So, for the first time, the management committee of the Botanic Gardens could, at the outset of a financial year, say, Here's how much we plan to spend in the pursuit of our five or six strategic objectives. The system of actual costing that Alistair established could then, at the end of the year, produce the actual costs for each of the strategic objectives. So you could say, the the management board could say, if we think strategic, strategic objectives one and two are most important, they could see for the first time, are we putting most of our resource into these? So it became a useful governance tool. Um, for them to come up with their strategic resource allocation. And then that was combined with a new system of performance measurement, where the performance measures were also set in relation to the strategic objectives at both a target and an actual level. So it doesn't look much for three or four years' work when you look at it in summary like this, but the process of doing it took a long time um, difficult culture, scientists for whom commercial and business terms were alien, it took a long time and a lot of effort and I think you'll see that when Alistair presents to, to put this into effect. And this is up and running now and I, I think quite successfully in the, the botanic gardens. This gentleman here is John Swinney I can't imagine very many people outside Scotland know who John Swinney is. And in fact, not many people inside Scotland know (laughs) who John Swinney is either. He's a politician, and he's our equivalent of George Osborne, our Chancellor of the Exchequer. And John Swinney is responsible for spending between 35 and £40 billion per annum. He looks a bit worried there, and he's worried because... When he spends that amount of money, he's held accountable. And we now have our own parliament in Scotland, and some of the parliamentary committees hold them accountable for the spending that he's engaging in. And you can see from the quotes there, the first two quotes, that the one thing they want to see from John Swinney is a linking of government expenditure to outcomes, to performance measures. What are we getting out of our money? There's also been some work done on outcome budgeting in, uh, by consultancies. Um, there's a quote from one of them. It, they tend to conclude the reports that the consultancies have produced. This is a very important area, but it's very difficult, if not impossible, to link outcome measures to costs. Now, Michael hinted at it in his introduction, Scots are different, peculiar, some people would say. I mean, we dress differently, we have peculiar accents, and we like bagpipe music. But we have one more difference as well, and that is that we now have a national government performance framework. And that was established a few years ago. And this just gives you, there's a lot of documentation on it, but this is just to give you a flavour of what it's like. Our government wants Scots to be wealthier. We want a fairer society. We want Scots to be smarter, healthier, safer, stronger. We want a green economy. And these are the strategic objectives of our government. And there's lots of ways in which these can be achieved. And that adds to the challenge, of course, because when you have objectives like that, you you want to know, are we achieving them? So you need some metrics to attach to them to decide, yes, we are achieving these objectives, or no, we're not. We're making progress, or we're not. And that's one potential um, gap that outcome budgeting can fill if we can achieve a system of outcome budgeting. We've started work on this, particularly in the botanic gardens, but we also have a small set of similar bodies, Historic Scotland, the Crofting Commission and other ones, who are also doing some work in this area to see if they can also come up with a a, a system of outcome budgeting. Our ultimate target is this grid at the bottom. We would like, at the end of the day, at a micro level, for organisations like the Botanic Gardens and so on, to come up with this information. Objectives and the spend and outcome measures. And at an aggregate level, the government would very much like, and John Swinney would very much like, to have a grid like this, which covered all of the government expenditure in Scotland. And it would solve the problem which worries him of having his spend linked to outcome measures. How successful has government spending been? We hope that through working in a bottom-up way with these smaller organisations, we can somehow develop a system which can spread within Scotland and possibly, in due course, it can, from the bottom-up, produce something at the aggregate level which will put a smile on John Swinney's face. Now Alistair is going to take over now and he's going to tell you a bit about what's actually been achieved within the Botanic Gardens.
1: Okay thank you Faulkner and thanks for turning up. We um, set a a research question, which was to determine how to create a costing system that would link to outcomes. And then we broke that down into a series of five problems. Essentially, what were the outcomes we were actually trying to determine? Find a costing model, extend that model across a a set of bodies to test it outside just one organisation, find some way of reporting on all of that information in a coherent way, and then ultimately, as was just said, solve the whole issue for a national government. So quite a tall order to get through. But we've made a start. And the first thing that we did at the Botanic Garden was to agree with government officials. And the reason that we have to agree with government officials is that they sponsor us. And they are responsible to the ministers for how we perform. And therefore, collaboration is the key with government, even though we are A non-departmental public body and, in theory, operate at arm's length. You'll see in a moment a, a chart which will show that we used to attempt to contribute to 11 out of 16 national outcomes. Now, the thinking in those days was that more was good, because that would persuade Alex Salmond and John Swinney to give us more money. And that belief was held by many bodies and so lots of other bodies started following us as well in that thinking Um, but on reflection what it was doing essentially was diluting the effort that we were making into far too many outcomes and what NDPBs are set up to do is to give some specific and perhaps unique skills to the government in our case it's (coughs) biological, biodiversity and, 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 and tourism and education in those related fields We're not trying to prove that we contribute to Scotland just by our mere existence. So we're trying to now focus on that. So what we decided to do was to contribute to fewer national outcomes but make a much more comprehensive contribution to them. And the same way we also did the same internally by reviewing the number of um, impacts. That's what we call outcomes because people got confused between outputs and outcomes so we just changed the names activities and impacts. And we reduced the, the, the impacts from eight to three, and you'll see that in a moment. So the next thing we had to do was to really take a, a good look at the KPIs. As you all know, you can have rafts and rafts of KPIs, and it's the easiest thing in the world to collect them. But actually measuring them takes effort and cost and time, And many of them, frankly, are pointless, because you do nothing with them. Unless you are going to say at the end of it, so what? Has it confirmed my behaviour? Has it changed my behaviour? If it hasn't done either of those two things, get rid of it. It's just wasting your time. The other thing that started us um, doing was, when we started talking about how we're going to manage the activities that we were carrying out, it allowed us to think about how they aligned between the inputs, the outputs, and the outcomes. there's there's one term there that you might not have seen before which is this key impact progress assessment KIPF, it's one we've invented research as many of you will know takes quite a lot of time to come to fruition there's a lot of effort going into that over a period of years and and, and we thought it would be unreasonable not to recognise that effort so we have a narrative assessment going on during the course of that process to say what is going on and how well it's doing what barriers there may be so that we can recognise the effort and therefore the cost, which we'll see in a moment, and we call that a KIPPA. Key results is just simply the term we use for our outcomes, i.e. the consequence of our efforts, the benefits. So here are the differences in strategy maps. The one on the left is the one that we had for quite a long time. Now what's missing from these maps is loads and loads of arrows. There would be loads of arrows, but they'd also be extremely unreadable. So how we overcame that was in our corporate plan we would have each um, objective with a mini-strategy map which might have one or two of these contained. But what you'll see is that we've shifted from the left to the right in a much more streamlined version of our strategy map which kind of focuses our attention on what we are trying to achieve as an institution. And that has got the buy-in of the staff and they get it now and they understand that less is better, not more. So that's been a significant cultural change in our thinking, but I think it's had benefits. And one of the reasons we've had to do that is to allow us to start thinking about how to apply a costing model which would be meaningful. So the costing model started a few years ago, and it started during a peer review, which is like the university research assessment exercise that used to go on. Um, uh, And institutions like ours also get those um, assessments. And there was a scientist, well, there's a head of education that stood there and said, I'm making a profit because I receive course fees and I have direct costs and there's a difference and therefore it's a profit. Well, some of our science colleagues said, hang on a minute, I'm teaching on this course and you're not costing me, and somebody else said, I'm teaching on this, and so on. And when we started to look at this, and I don't know if you can read the numbers, yes, you pulled the can, what you're seeing is on the left, for instance, science... At that time, cost 3.3 million, but under our costing model, only 2.9. So there's nearly 400 going to drift there. Horticulture, 3 million down to 2.3. That's quite a loss. Visitor services, which is the, the activity we do to welcome all our tourists and, and people visiting for recreational purposes, went from 590, 600,000 up to 1.2 million. It doubled. Similarly, education, similar sort of proportion. the the management side stayed more or less the same. So what was going on here was that we were able to see, well, the effort that's being applied to our outcomes, or our outputs at this time, is considerably different to how the cost centre structure would tell you the information. And that was fundamentally important to this whole exercise. On the left-hand side, you get the traditional cost centre, which is all about inputs, doesn't tell you how you're behaving and how you're actually spending your money. We then... um, It produced a couple of documents which had been produced by SEMA and essentially it was describing this process. Uh, And and in simple terms, we had to work out how staff were allocating their time to activities which aggregated to an objective. We then had to work out how the non-salary expenditure, which represents about 30% of our costs against the strategic objectives and then add those together to get the cost Of an objective. Now, it's very easy to say that quickly, it actually takes quite a bit of effort to do that, as you can imagine. And the whole structuring of the organisation has to change to produce this data. But here's the model in graphic terms. You've got the staff at the very top filling in their timesheets once a week, it takes them about five minutes. They have a drop down menu that says, I'm spending X percent of my week on one of four or five activities. Uh, most people might have two or three, some of us have got ten, but no more than about ten. So it's, it was critical to get the number of activities to a manageable level, which were meaningful at this level, because it's all going to get aggregated. Every finance code, the non-salary expenditures double coded, one for the cost centre and one for the activity, so we could extract reports out to feed different systems. The consequence of doing all that number crunching was that you ended up with a cost of the strategic objectives. That was output costing at that time. That's all we tried to do. But that was a major breakthrough in getting some data for that. Now this is the kind of sort of output you would get. Uh, that's obviously a spreadsheet and it's made up. But what it's showing you on, one, on the left hand side you have a cost centre up there. And the, the folks in that cost centre we know how much they cost. We can get that from payroll, We know how they've spent their non-salary expenditure amounts because they've double-coded it. Staff tell us how much time they spend on achieving one of those objectives here, and we can add them up. So 25% times this cost equals a figure, and then we can keep adding these up. So at the bottom, of course, there's more than one cost centre contributing. You end up with an aggregation of costs for each objective. So that's what we did, and we can come up with data that shows how we have spent our resource against objectives. So what? Well, we also have to match it against performance. And, and of course, that matching then gets us to looking at the KPIs. Um, At the moment, remember, we're still at the KPIs. We haven't gone to outcomes yet. So this allows the management team to review what it is their staff are doing and is it the right usage of resource. And if not, they can start thinking about redirecting that resource to another activity. A a simple example was we had our scientists who... um, I'd recognised that resources were going to reduce in a year or two. Grants was seen as a good way to get some money, start writing some grant proposals, but if you're writing grant proposals, you're not doing your research. So the research time went down, but the grant writing time went up. In due course, grants came in, so we could see the benefit coming from all of that. But because we know from the previous slide where all these costs are sitting within cost centres, We can then reconcile that back uh, to the cost centres to allow for budgetary management under the normal divisional structure. So we still had the budgetary control going on uh, under a different guise. But what this does mean is that the staff responsible for these cost centres have to have a strategic overview of how they are contributing to the organisational goals, not just their own. And and that was fundamentally interesting and important for them to grasp that. Some were slower at grasping that idea than others, it has to be said. Okay, we're now going to move quickly to the idea of outcome costing. Now, we're looking at the new strategy map, which is the one we showed on the right. And this is the bottom half of that map. And what we're showing here are the objectives contained in the governance box and in the resources box. And in very loose terms, we might describe those as um, overhead objectives, for the sake of a term. And what we wanted to do was to allocate those costs to the activities, which are our outputs, which we were then going to somehow track through to outcomes. So we applied an ABC methodology, a very simplistic one, because we don't have the technologies or the, or the resources to implement anything difficult and complicated but we know where the staff are what uses they're making of these resources so we can allocate those on a on a defensible basis and that, that's the key thing but nothing difficult and complex so we were now able to push all of these bottom two um, prospectus up to this line up up here that gave us the output costs so this is a model so what we've done here is we've found out all these costs we're now tracking them across a whole range of tasks that contribute to our outputs and these have got numbers, pound signs against them and you can aggregate them into the outputs Here. and if you know where the activities are going towards the outcomes we can do the same this one we've allowed for um, outputs going to two, more than one outcome ideally you don't have that but inevitably you may therefore you need to have some basis of apportionment That basis must be defensible, so we need to get some expert view which should come up with a similar answer on each occasion if it's going to be valid. Here's a nice one here. It comes straight down. Linear model at that point. Now, in our case, we managed to get all of them going to only one outcome. Now, you might argue that was contrived, but it actually came down to very clear definitions of what we were trying to do and what the outcomes were. So what you've got here are these overhead if you like objectives. These are the output activities that we do and these are tracked into the output objectives here. Because we know what each of those is trying to achieve by way of an outcome we can track it through into the various outcomes here and you've got some coming down to different boxes. So all of these lines will have a pound sign on them If we know that, we can just add them up, and all of that lot added up equals an outcome, as it does here, as it does here. Now, we've actually tested that model. It does work. We're going to go with live data starting from next week, the 1st of April. It's taken us about six months to work through all of this, because what we need from staff is agreement about how this is going to work. It's not a question of just imposing it. Otherwise, you end up with endless arguments about who's contributing to what and why. So that's quite a process to get through. But we've done that, and now we're ready to go. But we know the model works from fictitious data. OK, the next problem we had to think about was... How are we going to test this in more than just the organisation I was familiar with? And we had um, let it be known at a public bodies conference that we were thinking of doing this project and if anybody was interested to get in touch because we wanted people who were interested in participating not being forced to do it at this early stage and within about 24 hours we had five public bodies saying we want to play and a couple of weeks later another four said they wanted to join in and we also had one from the Republic of Ireland who had nothing whatsoever to do with us but they had seen one of the theme of publications that I showed you earlier and they wanted to jump on board as well so we had a workshop and lots of issues came out of that, but but there was nothing particularly surprising, except that clarification of terminology is going to be critical to make a national thing work, and similarly with measures, so that we're trying to measure the same thing across the piece. But what this strategy map is showing you is these are just some of the bodies that were playing, and what we were saying is, well, here's some. Ex- I mean, for the sake of this map, I'm just showing you some exemplar output which would then feed directly into the national outcomes. the 16 national outcomes that should feed into those. They haven't done that alignment at Scottish Government level, but that's a discussion we're having as well, which I suspect will end up with a review of those and also of their indicators, which presently are weak as well. But this is just starting to show the model can start to work across several organisations rather than just a single one. We haven't done this yet we're in the process of doing it and we've got volunteer bodies wanting to engage which is quite encouraging for us so all of that's fine but unless you get information out of it then it's pretty pointless so what we started to look at what kind of data can we collect by way of performance information and all this is showing you here is from our organization over a period of three months the allocation of those costs to the different objectives what you're seeing here, this is the same information represented in different ways, is that it's changing each month. Now this wasn't being managed, this was self-directed change, which tells you that it's not the same effort going in all the time to the same objective. So if that has been changed by the self-management, it means you can also manage it and get people to change their activities to, to focus more on, on a, a more operationally or strategically important objective at the time. This bottom line just shows you changes going on, relative changes. And we produce this in a a performance report every month. So here's just an example of a report. What you've got up here is the cost centres and the amount of effort they've put into this objective. You can see three divisions have contributed to this particular one. The risk scores, KPIs being achieved are the cumulative and monthly, and this is a graphic representation of this. So you can see who's doing what and how much they're putting effort into it. What I'm not showing you here is there's a narrative report going along with this as well to explain what's going on and why and what's gone right and what's gone wrong so that we can do something about it. It's not about blame or reward. It's about improving our total organisational performance for the benefit of the institution. Nobody's page related to any of this. i going to make that point. This is just another picture, and and Faulkner mentioned the idea of, you know, at the end of the day, government wants to see how they've spent their money. Well, this is us looking over a year or two years. The red line shows the previous year's um, cost line for this sort of thing, and then the the histogram shows you the the current year. And then down below that, you're seeing data showing you the cost compared to the performance uh, against each of those particular output activities. And you can see that there is some variation going on. And it's not always more. It's not always you spend more, you get more. Sometimes, in this case, you spent less, and you got less. So, the final thing we wanted to look at was to um, how would we then take this up to a national level? Well, again, the national system works. The Scottish Government up at the very top. You've got the government departments sitting in here, and you've got the bodies. Each of them have got goals and objectives to achieve. Which they then filter up through the system. So it's a reporting up to so eventually we're able to say to ministers, well, this is how well you're doing. Show the performance, the KPIs, the K- KRIs, and the costs. It's a big exercise, we're nowhere near getting there yet, but if we can get there, then it'll be a massive step forward and it'll satisfy all the all the, the issues that the government keeps getting asked about. So very quickly then the conclusions of this study were that um, you need to get understand that management accounting, and you all know this, is to some extent arbitrary because you're making choices about what you're measuring. But nevertheless, as long as you know the basis of your choices, then you can take it for what it's worth. Um, And that's true of most management accounting data. So accept that and use it to the best of advantage. This isn't about financial reporting, this is about decision making. So it's about giving you the best information for the future. Um, We believe that this sort of um, process will provide better information for planning and management and control Um, clearly therefore it should be a contribution to management accounting and because it's performance orientated we believe there may be a contribution to make to the new international performance framework or the international reporting framework which has a significant contribution required about performance. This could add a dimension to that report if, if, if those who were responsible for that framework were so interested And we haven't had that discussion yet. Um, Obviously, knowing costs and achievement should be useful. Um, You need to have a basis for developing this sort of framework, and we've got it on the model of the output costing and taking it to outcomes. Um, But clearly, there's still much more work to be done. And we're on the beginning of the journey. We've done problems one and two, problems three to five, which is the much bigger picture, is still to be achieved. So... Thank you very much. Thank you both. Um we have a couple of minutes and obviously
2: we've keep time as well,
3: last question things. Does anybody have any questions? You mentioned at one point that um the work you have been doing doesn't have a link into pay and rations. Um, and I was wondering, so much of what we hear about is paying by results and so on, the bonus culture, if you like. Yeah. So if the, um, the initial inputs are so far removed from the, the outcomes through your matrix, how might that evolve in terms of relating a person's performance to what they earn? Or isn't that on your agenda?
1: No, I mean, we don't in the public sector in Scotland, I suspect it's the same down here, there's no bonus systems at all, you're on a pay scale, that's it, that's what you get. What you tend to find though in organisations like this and some of the other ones that we've um, shown, people are very passionate about what they do so there's no difficulty getting people to work it's about getting them to work in a coherent way that delivers the organisational goals rather than personal goals so it's really about trying to bring that coherence for a strategic purpose so it's not related to pay they get paid anyway. Uh, We don't have a problem with people not wanting to. In fact, the biggest problem we had at the very beginning was actually trying to strip out all the stuff they wanted to tell us about because it was largely about personal performance. This isn't. This is about organisational performance, not individual performance.
0: Your, Your question sort of highlights some of the challenges in the work that we've set out on. So, for example, there are a lot of academics here and one of the things we do is teach. Now, we can easily measure the amount of teaching we do in terms of the number of hours of lectures and tutorials. We can cost it quite easily as well. But that doesn't tell us if our teaching has been successful. We want to know have the students passed the exam? Have the students given good feedback? Maybe ultimately we want to know has our teaching helped the students to get employment? And when you go to outcomes at that type of level, it's very, very difficult to link through in a meaningful way and set up reward systems on the basis of it because there's jointnesses involved and there's many, many factors are leading to a student becoming employable or not. So this is one of the challenges, to look at bits and, and, and try and produce information. We'll never produce a perfect output but we might be able to do something that's useful. And management accountants do that. We don't know what true cost is in complex organisations, but, by goodness, we spend a lot of time on costing systems to do the best estimate we can. Um,
4: Malcolm Backes again, I'm afraid. Um, still the same person that I was this morning, I think. Uh, you, you, just mentioned, you just mentioned the issue of spending a lot of time and, and cost and input on management accounting, which, of course, all of us doing it do. And this system, with more coding involved with timesheets, obviously also has more cost input and more management input. Um, There's one minor question I'd like to ask, which is, what accounting system are you using for it? But that's just my own personal interest. But the bigger question is, how are you actually going to prove that this is producing a better result than what you had before? In other words, I mean, in a, in a commercial business, it's fairly—it's well, not easy, but you can do it because you've got profitability, and you can see the cost of the systems against your profitability. You haven't quite got that, so how do you know this is actually doing something which is better than what you had before in terms of output?
1: Yeah, um, obviously, it's, we're not going to get that in year one or even year two. It's going to take three or four years to build up the data set to see are we actually improving our outputs, our outcomes. Now, to some extent, that will be a judgement which we can look at in time, we know what we're doing now. If, as a result of this, we can better use these resources and achieve better outcomes, we know there's a lot of duplication of effort going on between bodies, for instance, in in, in Scotland, and I'm sure that's true right across public sectors and what was in, rather than duplication. So what we should see is an increased efficiency, and also we should see staff concentrating on where the institution wants it to go. It will take time to prove that, and it's it's an absolutely valid point. We can't tell you that in year one or even year two, but I think over time, if in the end of the day, we end up making no difference whatsoever, then it would be a waste of time, absolutely. But I think we're hopeful that it will prove that something will improve by way of behaviour change in time accounting systems? Sorry, what accounting systems you're also using within within the botanic gardens? Well, we have a, a standard um, accrual-based um, accounting system. I mean, we've got quite complex because we're a charity, we've got government accounting, we've got commercial companies, so that all has to work together. This is a bolt-on on top of it. All we're doing is we're extracting a report out of our finance system for the non-salary expenditure with a coding, which we can just pull out as a spreadsheet. The HR system, which is only a five-minute-a-week job, um, it also produces a spreadsheet. We bring the two together through an SQL into performance management system. So it's a very cheap solution for us. Clearly, for a big, complex organisation, that would be more of an issue. But for us, it's very cheap.
2: OK, well, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.
5: Thank you, Michael. Um, Good afternoon. I'll let you get on with uh, changing the slides. As Michael says, I'm Rick Payne. I run ICAW's thought leadership program around the role of the CFO and uh, improving finance function performance. Uh, And I have the honor of introducing uh, the next speaker, Warwick Hunt, who's PwC's UK CFO. Um, before I do that, I just wanted to quickly draw your attention to the back page of the uh, pack, which is the call for papers for the sister conference, the uh, MARG conference at Aston, uh, in association with the Management Control Association. So please do make your effort to get along with that. Um, you've got Warwick's bio in your packs, and I know that Warwick is going to uh, tell you a little about himself to put things in context in any case. So, suffice to say that Warwick has had a fantastic international career, as you'll see, and we're very pleased to count him among ICAW's members, among other bodies. Um, And he was selected as ICA's uh, New Zealand's uh, Chast Accountant of the Year. And when we were putting the theme together for the conference, I thought, well, if it's about strategic alliances, then accounting firms must be a really interesting example of strategic alliances. And hearing about that from a CFO's perspective, I think, was was really appealing. And as far as I'm aware, there's not a lot of research on that at all. But accounting firms are huge economic entities. If you look at the revenue of PwC Global, it's about on the par with Starbucks, I think, which gives you some idea of the, the scale we're talking about. And I'm really curious about the role of a CFO in an accounting firm. Can you imagine what it's like having 100 partners running around, probably thinking they know better than you? And I also remember speaking to a CFO in a uh, huge law firm. And he said, you know, I've got one major problem. I've got hundreds of people running around the building as though they own the place. Unfortunately, they do. (laughs) So I'm really looking forward to Warwick's uh, speech. So join me in welcoming Warwick.
6: Thank you very much indeed. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. if uh, at all you uh, struggle a little bit with the uh, amalgam of accents that you're going to come uh, or hear coming out of my mouth, please uh, don't hesitate to uh, uh, to stop me. Um, I uh, I am speaking English, I promise. Um, I will actually uh, uh, slow down from time to time if I have to, and uh, I'm just going through the process in my, my very first year in London of getting used to this rather strange thing called the weather. You know, two weeks ago, it uh, seemed as though it was going to be a classic New Zealand-style spring out there, you know, about 18, 20 degrees, and you know, i actually feeling absolutely lovely. You could almost smell the cut grass in terms of, uh, you know, uh, the cricket fields and all the rest of it. Well, walking up here from Embankment Place, which is where one of our offices is, I think I nearly froze. You know, it must be uh, pretty close to about two degrees out there at the moment. So uh, it's been lovely to be in a nice, warm uh, lecture theatre, and certainly absolutely delightful to be here. Now, I think the comments that were made are absolutely correct. Um, you know, when, uh, if you look at the role of the CFO or COO within the context of one of the uh, major accounting networks, you are quite literally um, dealing with a large number of uh, experts uh, in the field of, of accounting and in finance. And uh, far be it from 100 partners who actually think they know more than, uh, than you do. Uh, indeed, in the case of PwC, just in the UK, there are about 875 and uh, the simple and humbling uh, fact of the matter is that in many cases they do. So, one of the, the key themes that I really wanted to uh, talk about today is the CFO in the role of convener. The convener of debate, convener of um, uh, the areas upon which the organization should actually focus, convener of, and in a sense, the conscience of the broader organization, in addition to a whole host of the things that we might consider as being more conventionally associated with uh, the CFO position, such as establishing budgets, holding people accountable to targets, um, and effectively, ultimately, on a collaborative basis, producing um, the bottom line and, indeed, the top line of the organisation. And certainly one of the things that uh, I'd like to focus on today is that I think there's infinitely more interest and infinitely more that we can actually draw from that role of convener than necessarily many of the the more traditional kinds of areas. Um, In talking today, I'll I'll give you a little bit of my own background and perhaps that will provide some kind of insight for the slightly unconventional uh, kind of approach that we'll bring. I'd like then to reflect on what it is that makes partnerships successful. Um, You know, if you look at the partnership model, it was something that was developed a considerable period ago. It was actually intended to apply to far smaller organisations Uh, then certainly the massive uh, multinational networks that we actually see uh, operating around the world today. And as a result of that, there are many, many features that I think we need to look at, recognise what it is that we need to actually retain and recognise potentially those areas that can effectively be arbitraged away um, as the organisation actually seeks to meet the needs of its stakeholders. That stakeholder perspective I want to focus on a little bit. And I'm going to introduce a methodology and a little bit of thought leadership that uh, we're attempting to drive, basically, through our worldwide organisation that actually causes us, I think, to be slightly more broadly focused in our overall perspective and causes the organisation to slightly take a slightly more purpose-oriented kind of view of what it is actually about. I'll speak a little bit about the more conventional aspects of the CFO role uh, within the context of the network, Then I'll come back and conclude just with a few comments around intergenerational equity and the entire question of actually perpetuating the organisation. And there's some fairly unique and quite interesting challenges that you actually face in that regard, because the partnership model traditionally, for the better part of 150 years, certainly within the context of the accounting profession, has been about paying out everything that is earned every single year. And from a pure capital maintenance perspective that actually poses a series of quite substantial challenges. Uh, No doubt you can see and you will have read uh, the biography. I'll probably only make um, two or three comments uh, in this regard. Firstly, the perspective that I bring is international. I have worked uh, in Africa, in the United States, throughout the Asia-Pacific region, most recently in the Middle East. So I'm going to be bringing a a perspective that is really an amalgam of many, many different cultures um, and you know, many different focuses on the, the question more broadly of performance. I also bring a practitioner's perspective. I continue to service clients. I think it is fundamentally important that we actually do that. And my area of practice is typically in complex accounting and within uh, the transaction service um, or the MA deals area. So a fairly pressurised kind of area where, through continuing to practice, you actually are reasonably close to the demands that are being placed on your organisation as a whole, And what it is, ultimately, that your stakeholders are fundamentally looking for. That's incredibly important. Because in an organisation where every partner avidly believes that they own the business, and they do, it's very, very important that you carry the moral authority to be able to carry with you your partners based upon being out there in the trenches with them as you actually go about serving the ultimate stakeholder groupings. The final comment I'd make is that I've actually been the senior partner of two medium-sized practices, one in New Zealand and one in the Middle East. In the Middle East, a region. So in other words, a regional amalgamation of 14 separate national partnerships. And again, as a result of that, I think probably bring a slightly broader perspective and broader point of view than perhaps simply looking at the financial controllership and uh, and accountability uh, areas. A couple of uh, just thoughts uh, in in relation to, uh, you know, our particular network. You can see there, I don't know Starbucks' uh, turnover, but uh, 32.1 billion US is is the number. This year that will be about 35, uh, you know, within that that broader kind of area. You can see EMEA is the largest area of PwC's activities. And PwC within the UK, um, and I'll just come to that very quickly, is the second largest firm within the broader network. So we have a US firm that is about... 10 billion US dollars, and in the UK we're about 4.25. So a very, very substantial firm by the standards of the size of the UK economy. I think the UK economy is about the eighth largest in the world, GDP of about 2.2 billion uh, pounds. And you can see here you have a professional service organisation that is actually you know, um, uh, in excess of a thousandth of the size of the broader economy. And I think that kind of underscores the importance of professional services within the context of this economy. I don't think that we can ever have functional roles, whether that is a a CEO role, a COO, or ultimately a CFO, operating in the isolation or in isolation of the governance structures that operate across the broader organisation. And what makes governance within the context of an accounting network particularly challenging is that you have governance at the level of the actual legal entity, which typically will be a national partnership. So, in the case of the UK, PwC LLP. And you then have a series of governance overlays that apply at both a regional level, i.e., EMEA. So, uh, that's a conglomeration of about 14 billion uh, US dollars of, of practices, spread right the way from Reykjavik, Cape Town, through to Delhi. And then you have your overall global governance and oversight processes and to be a successful finance executive within the context of an organisation like that you basically have to cater to a series of stakeholders that are, are local and probably are most immediate in terms of their capacity to place demands and their right to actually be served in terms of the organisation right the way through to global stakeholders being the partners in the other uh, national partnerships and regional partnerships um, who ultimately are going to be looking at the direction and the approach of the global network as a whole. And it goes without saying, and I think we will certainly be very, very clear in holding to this course as a network, command and control just does not work within the context of a highly networked organisation like this. Now that is not an ethos that is shared amongst uh, all members of the so-called Big Four, There is at least one member of the Big Four that does believe in in a more corporate-like model, does believe in command and control, has effectively moved away from the concept of elected leadership um, and does focus pretty ruthlessly on what it perceives as the top 1,000 accounts in a worldwide marketplace. That is not the PWC ethos. That is not what we see as being important from the point of view of partnerial values. In some respects, we sometimes look at that and... Uh, I think some members of our leadership team sometimes rather wistfully believe that operating a corporate you know, must be easier in this mythical world of command and control than working within a highly networked partnership. But certainly, and again I've had some commercial experience, I doubt very much that that is the case. Because this is ultimately, as I said earlier about convening the discussion, about bringing along both minds but also... The hearts of the various constituencies that you are actually dealing with. So, moving on, what is it that makes partnership? What is it that we believe makes our PWC partnership successful? Because clearly, if we are actually going to be both the convener of the performance oriented discussion, uh, the party that focuses the debate on key stakeholder uh, constituencies, and ultimately the party that extracts accountabilities in the interests of the ownership group as a whole, we've got to be very, very clear about what success looks like. And you may be surprised that I actually haven't identified maximising profitability or maximising revenues in and amongst any of those, because I think in the first instance, even CFO roles have got to focus on the qualitative, what it is that actually binds the organisation in terms of its shared values and its shared ethos. The unique thing about partnerships is the attribute identified right at the start. The people who own the organisation work in the organisation. It's a cooperative cooperative organisation, essentially. There's also a very, very strong element of entrepreneurial spirit combined with a very, very strong culture of shared value and alignment in and around objectives. We have to remember that these were organisations that were originally designed, the original organisational design... Was around far smaller organisations. You know, organisations that in certain countries, certainly if I, I look at, say, the New Zealand Partnership Act, there's a limitation within that Act. of 50 people. 50 partners was the absolute maximum for many, many years, from about 1900 right the way through to well into the 90s. And that kind of ethos, I think, has tended to pervade. Clearly, though, these are also organisations. I mean, our own organisation has lasted for 165 years. That has been through a series of antecedent organisations and mergers that have occurred. And a a particularly enjoyable and and slightly poignant moment for me actually when I took on my new role here in London was when I was actually appointed as a director of a number of these subsidiary entities of PWC LLP. And these were organisations that way back in the early 80s when I was educated in an accounting profession rather like the English profession in southern Africa you know, these were organisations I remember being taught about. So you had Harry Co. you had Cooper Brothers 1908 Limited. And these organisations still exist. And actually being appointed as, you know, one of two directors of them was quite a buzz, I've got to tell you, because it was really, you know, linking across 30 years, you know, where the origins of our profession actually come from. So there's a real issue of longevity. But at the same time, there is this paradoxical situation where there is an expectation that 100% of earnings actually ultimately end up being paid out. So that creates challenges. The scale of the organisations creates challenges. The actual business model was designed originally to apply to far smaller, more tightly held and more tightly affected organisations. Control and controllership can be something of an issue. As I said, command and control simply does not work. So you actually have to deal with a series of collaborative mechanisms in order to actually bring that through. Harnessing and actually disseminating a shared knowledge and experience. Incredibly important, but also challenging. Because kind of integral to the professional ethos, I think, is this sense of fierce autonomy and pride and a little bit of irreverence. Because we all believe that we're pretty good at what we do and we can learn things from a first principle kind of perspective. So the entire issue of knowledge management actually becomes quite important. And then finally and understandably, for people who actually do own an organisation, the desire to achieve consensus on everything is very, very strong. So ultimately, you've got to work very, very hard on models that actually build reasonable amounts of consensus but contain a degree of agility. Now something that we have done a lot of work over, on and around over the last five years within the PwC network, is the entire issue of coming to understand the stakeholders of our network. And you might think based on the, the last 15 minutes, I've been very, very focused on partnership and the partner. But I think as we've actually done a great deal of research into, and we've looked inwardly as well in an attempt to actually understand the relevance of our profession, and the relevance of our organisation, the more work that we've actually done in that regard, the more we've come to recognise that it is we will only survive and be relevant if we understand the stakeholders that we're seeking to serve. So the traditional view, if you had spoken to any of the major accounting networks of stakeholders 10 years ago, would have been your clients, obviously, your people, and your partners. Now, not that partners aren't people, they, they are. but. Uh, uh, typically, you, we've characterised them in that kind of way. I think, as we look at this more closely, and we recognise the overall scale and the impact of these large networks, it's becoming apparent that our stakeholder groupings go far more broadly than that. Uh, obviously, you have supplier groupings. You know, we alone in the UK spend £700 million you know, and, and oversight that within our procurement networks. That's a big business. You have government, both central and local, You have professional bodies, you have more broadly politicians, journalists, academia, and you have broader community stakeholder groupings. Now, something that we have attempted to focus our performance measurement around, and I want to use this as an example really of how it is that in the role of the CFO, we have sought to convene the debate within PwC, is in the generation of a completely different and more holistic form of reporting. We call this TIMM, Tim, Total Impact, Measurement, and Management. And what we attempt to do here is actually look at this. If you like, this is a derivation of the old value-added statements that we all learned and loved and were tested on in the early 1980s when we qualified as chartered accountants. Really what this is attempting to do is look at our economic impact. In one sense, look at our environmental impact in another, look at the contribution of our organisation in a broad and comprehensive way in relation to overall contribution to the fiscus and then ultimately to look at societal impacts as well. And something that we found in doing this is that this has quite comprehensively changed the debate within the firm and has tended to focus our partners and our people far more broadly on a far broader series of accountabilities and we believe actually that you know, while this is still subsidiary to the traditional profit and loss account, and probably still subsidiary to the ultimate annual uh, statement of partners' earnings and the um, actual division of partners' earnings, there is something here that actually, once actually picked up upon and actively managed to, will actually considerably enhance our objective of rendering this organization and indeed this profession. Uh, more sustainable within the eyes of a very, very broad set of community stakeholders. So, you know, you can see in relation to that, that is, is PwC's actual footprint in accordance with our methodology as presently defined. I should be very clear and state that this is not perfect, and as yet we have struggled considerably attempting to identify ways, for instance, that we measure our contribution to healthcare or our contribution to well-being in society. But some other things are pretty simple. You know, If you look at taxation, you look at the various taxation aggregation, whether that is through payroll taxation, uh, the provisional taxation that is ultimately paid by partners, and then the various array of um, uh, indirect taxes. You're talking about close to a billion pounds a year that is effectively paid. You come back to that and you consider that you know 36% of UK GDP... Uh, actually comprises ultimately the tax take. And again, you're dealing with about one in every 800 pounds in tax that is actually generated in this economy is generated by that organisation and all of its various interactions with its people, its suppliers and ultimately its owners. That is a substantial accountability and that is something against which we like to measure ourselves. You can, uh, can work your way through to things like the environmental footprint and you can see that is obviously a negative impact and that is, uh, is recorded up there in red. Um, obviously, being a professional services firm, our environmental footprint is not as large as, say, uh, a mining organisation or an oil and gas conglomerate, but it is still there, and you know there, there are areas within that uh, that we clearly wish to manage. We've worked very, very hard as an organisation to work to zero to landfill. Now, those numbers need not be large, but they represent obligations and they represent things that we have taken very seriously and managed very, very specifically too. Another area that is pretty obvious is uh, in terms of carbon emissions. That's mainly travel, mainly international travel. And it has forced a whole series of changes as to the way in which we actually do work because every one of us ultimately is measured as to the amount of our carbon footprint in relation to any particular reporting period. So this is somewhat unconventional. It certainly does follow on from the the broader kind of total economic impact reporting that you do see a lot of. But I think it would come as a surprise to many who tend to view certainly firms like ours and the accounting profession as being completely and utterly economically driven to recognise that this is one of the major ways in which we do actually regulate our performance and we do focus all of our people on the ultimate stakeholder debate in seeking to become what is a more purpose-driven organisation. That's not to say that we do not apply and live by some very conventional standards of financial control, controllership, and ultimately accountability. If we look at the uh, the role of CFO, and we effectively combine CFO and operations, so it's a fairly broad role, that is something that we find to be important within the context of an organisation where you have something like 800 highly qualified chartered accountants, each of whom uh, believe that they, they know the role very, very well. Within the context of, of uh, financial management, that is, is as conventional as you would expect to find it. It is rigorous. It is accurate. It is something that we report in accordance with very, very tight kinds of deadlines. And it is something that we drive through each one of our businesses through establishing as the second in charge, next to our divisional leaders in each case, effectively a CFO stroke COO that has uh, both a direct line to the business leader and then to myself, uh, ultimately, as the person, um, you know, with the final say in relation to the financial performance within the business. We have also established a series of structures around your broader operations functions. I mean, IT is such an important enabler Associated with the performance of a professional service organization, that is something that we actually drive through the finance and operations function, clearly treasury you know at any particular point in time, we have over four hundred million in relation to working capital um, and other lines that we actually drive as an organization, both relative to the u k and on an international basis, up to two billion actually, when you look at it uh, two billion u s dollars fully internationally so that produces a treasury environment of of some scale and some complexity that actually requires a a degree of pretty careful kind of management. You also have um, the entire area of infrastructure and property. Now, within the context of infrastructure, 37 offices across the UK and something like 750 across the broader network. Certain of these offices, such as our two major flagship offices here in London, at Embankment Place and more London, 6,500 people each, you know, within those offices. So these are very large, very complex installations that require a huge amount of management. And that management is intrinsic, obviously, ultimately, to the financial control function. But finally, and probably most importantly, the role as we drive it in terms of the role of the CFO and operations is focused more around strategy than anything else. That element of focusing on the stakeholder, that element ultimately of holding the organisation accountable to a broader kind of purpose, manifests as well when you look at the areas in which we seek to innovate. We're seeking to innovate at the moment across a range of areas within the data analytics and the digital fields. And again, there is a very, very active involvement in terms of defining the key performance indicators and defining what actually constitutes either success or complete failure in relation to those areas. It's here actually in looking at the innovation agenda that we've had to invert what is a very, very natural series of attributes within finance functions, which is that everything has got to be successful. Well, Actually, when you're dealing with an innovation agenda, the majority of what you do is actually not successful. And that becomes all about empowering people to actually take risk and therefore to achieve some degree of of innovation but at the same time to ensure that you know when the right time on a collaborative basis is to intervene, to effectively terminate certain activities, and potentially in some cases to divert those into other areas. That's been a challenge. That's been something that we have actually had to adapt, you know, to actually learn how to handle, but it is something that we are ultimately becoming better at and will need to be better at. If you look at the importance, for instance, of data analytics, to the conduct of chartered accountancy as we actually go forward. We structure our organisation in a way that is actually reasonably conventional, and again you'll have that within your slide packs, but I think the one area that I would concentrate within that area is the middle orb there, the question of decision support. You can have all of your separate functional activities that are actually operating there, but unless you actually focus the majority of the intellect within your capacity. you know, Upon the key decisions that are being taken, whether at a divisional level, ultimately at a national level, or beyond that, at an international level, you actually are misapplying your focus or misapplying your effort. There are many things that we do in and around certain of those activity-based areas that involve a combination of, of outsourcing, co-sourcing, um, and now subsequently insourcing certain activities. I mean we saw certainly within the history of the organization there was a large amount of outsource of the transaction processing areas that actually occurred around about the early two thousands. We're now seeing increasingly a move to near shoring much of that. And in fact we have in excess of fifteen hundred people now working within our Belfast office uh, by way of example. Now that's fifteen hundred people you know, in an area in Northern Ireland has a population of 1.4 million. So very significant by the standards of the broader economy that actually exists there, but certainly something that we have found both in terms of the effectiveness of the outcomes, uh, in terms of cost effectiveness, and in terms of broader sustainability, a very, very important thing to do in terms of moving from the offshore to the nearshore kind of equation. Moving forward, and and as a last area before perhaps we throw it open uh, for questions that I want to talk about, is this this question of sustainability within partnerships. And I I indicated earlier that there is this presumption that applies in professional service partnerships that basically they pay out everything they earn within any one particular year that you're looking at. The difficulty with that is that you obviously have generations of stakeholders within the business both partners and non-partners, who have a valid claim you know, on the overall, uh, the overall performance of the business in any one year and over a considerable period of time. So if I look, for instance, at the, the PwC organisation, it has some classic features of a legacy organisation. It has two retired partners for every one working partner. It has close to £2 billion worth of pension obligations in relation to both existing but also um, former staff members. So there's a very delicate balance that we have to apply within the context of this national partnership as one of 120 national partnerships, all of whom have pretty similar characteristics across the broader kind of organisation, to make sure that those you know, valid rights of both past partners and past staff members, existing staff members... Uh, and existing partners, and then those who will actually succeed us actually are appropriately, ultimately weighed up. And this is all within the context of an organisation that doesn't have an equity value and doesn't essentially have a financial instrument that represents a continuation or a store of the value of the organisation that is passed from one party through to the next. Now, one of the key questions, and we are devoting a lot of thought to this at the moment, is whether within the context of partnership structures and partnership uh, remuneration arrangements and the more broader networks that we actually apply, as to whether we can continue with a model that does not actually have the ability to actually uh, effectively value and pass that valuation on from generation to generation in any way other than effectively um, the attribution of an annual earnings result. And there are many, many conflicting attributes that we have to work through in that regard. In the meanwhile, we apply what I would determine as a mixed model. Within that mixed model, there are substantial capital maintenance adjustments that we ultimately arrive at. Our financial statements are publicly available. We produce them to full PLC IFRS standards, and that's something that we're very, very proud to do because we see it as being important in discharging our stakeholder obligations. Our financial statements get focused upon by the press uh, in a fairly merciless kind of way, and they tend to focus on two numbers, actually, maybe a third. Uh, The first is the earnings of the chairman. Um, That tends to get a a fair kind of focus. The second, then, is is the average level of earnings of the partnership. And then the third level is the amount of tax, both as a a percentage um, of total partner earnings and as an absolute kind of amount. Now what is interesting in those financial statements is if you look at the actual IFRS-based earnings, they produce earnings figures per partner of, in the region of 830 to £840,000. And they, they vary. Some years will be around 800, uh, some other years up to around about the, the £840,000 kind of level. The true distribution to partners is massively different to that. And the major reason for the difference, in fact the true, true distribution, which we disclose as well, is closer to the high 600s. And the major difference between the two actually represents earnings that are going to retired partners, you know, in perpetuating this intergenerational equity point that we're making, but also, crucially, capital maintenance adjustments that we're making such that we can continue to retain sufficient cash within the business to actually ensure that we are investing in the right kinds of innovations, acquisitions, and ultimately. Uh, areas of expansion as we go about meeting those various stakeholder needs. So it's a real balancing act, and I'd have to say, you know, from the point of view of the CFO in an organisation like this, it's the toughest area. It's the toughest area because it's where the rubber really hits the road. And I, I'd have to also confess that until I think organisations such as ours do ultimately go about producing some kind of uh, equitisation within the context of the broader model, I think it's an area that we're going to continue to find a very, very substantial challenge. So really, that, that was as much as I, I was intending uh, to cover. It's been a, a reasonably quick gallop through a series of very, very complex areas. But in conclusion, and you know, moving beyond what perhaps has been a, a conventional view of the role of the CFO, I do think any business really has got to focus pretty hard on why it exists you know, and what it is actually about. You know, it's very, very easy, I think, to focus purely on commercial success. And we've seen in this economy and in many others around the world, I think the consequences from about 2007 onwards of what actually occurs when that ultimately is the predominant, the dominant kind of focus that we're looking at. I'd like to propose, and I think this is something that we within the professions need to take particular accountability for, that we actually as organisations will only be sustainable, will only have a future, and therefore will only have something for CFOs to actually measure and hold their organisations accountable to, if we focus on those broader stakeholder concerns. Thank you very much indeed. Please,
7: I believe that in talking about the FTSE 100, only one of the firms doesn't employ one of the big four accounting
6: firms. Do you think this is um, healthy for the country? Um, I think it is inevitable. You're going to see some diversification in that regard. And uh, I think uh, it is... You know, you can view a situation based on how it presently stands um, or you could view a situation based upon where regulatory intent uh, is clearly headed. Clearly, there's been a lot of work that has been done by competition authorities and regulatory authorities more broadly. I see absolutely no issue with diversification beyond uh, the major four networks in terms of FTSE 100, provided uh, they have the capacity to do the work and uh, provided they meet their stakeholder needs and being able to do so. None whatsoever.
3: I think you mentioned that you were near-shoring some of your activities that had been offshored. Mm-hmm. Um, could you comment on some of the reasons for that?
6: I, I think, you know, and, and again, I'm, I'm straying a little bit into having not been here at the time. But certainly it seems to me that a lot of businesses in the United Kingdom actually you know, fell in love with the capacity to actually take local operations and put them into generally um, West Asian locations in the, in the early 2000s. And certainly PwC was no different to that. I think that was done for a number of reasons. Standardisation was important. Um, the application of new IT systems tended to drive that to a degree. And cost was a, was a factor too. I think the experience in doing that has generally been satisfactory but what has become very, very clear is that the differential in inflation and cost base um, between certain of those West Asian locations and indeed certain parts of the UK has been such that the cost equation no longer stacks up. And I think then if you take a a slightly more stakeholder-driven kind of approach, you look at communities around the UK and I mean one that we've tended to focus on happens to be uh, in Belfast, uh, you actually find yourself with superb educational standards. Um, you find yourself with um, people who are very, very focused and very committed to and very proud you know, of their, their kind of uh, province and, and uh, origins associated with that. And you can therefore produce a, a very, very satisfactory, not quite as good a cost outcome, but a very, very satisfactory series of qualitative outcomes through actually bringing quite a lot of that activity back to, and uh, I guess, uh, near-shoring a little bit of a misnomer, um, given that ultimately this is all part of the, the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland. One more quick
5: for okay. i more I'd
2: just like to thank Warwick again. Thank you very much for all the help. Would the panel join me? and um, I, I'm not quite sure what um, uh, instructions I gave to people about the panel um, what's going to happen is each member of the panel is going to talk for a short, relatively short time, which I think was maximum of about 15 minutes well, it can be 5 as well ok so um, and then the rest of the time we can have for uh, discussion. Um, most of the, well, some of the panel have already been introduced to you very shortly. Uh, I will do so the same now for uh, George Gross, which I'm sure I've got that wrong as well. No, um, right. <laughs> He has the advantage of being an NSE student, not yesterday, not um, and has been... A founder and senior partner of a consult- consultancy group, isn't it, uh, for a long while, and once upon a time uh, ha- was part of the Coopers and Leibran uh, organization in Paris. Indeed, I should say uh, most of the time he's been in Paris. Uh, Ken Simmons, what can one say about Ken Simmons other than that he is a well, he is a professor at the London Business School, and a Professor, what was the final title? Professor of Strategy,
3: Marketing, and International Business. Right.
2: So he's I. So you know, he has a great advantage, uh, at least purporting not to be entirely an accountant in his views. Okay. So how should we um, uh, start this? Uh, well, well, as you've got some slides. Why don't you start? OK. But remember, five minutes is not really 15. Thanks. Is somebody going to help you with the slides? Are yeah. oh, they up there? The um, subject is Do Strategic Alliances Suggest New Strategy New Accounting? Well, of course, they will suggest new accounting, because strategy is not just accounting, not just costing, but also uh, revenues and generations of profits and so on. And in many ways, accountants have not really spent enough time on revenues. accountants are sort of told to look after costs and somebody else will look after revenues whereas of course if you're talking about something like a strategic alliance the two things are interweaved you can't look at one without looking at the other so that I think is why you need a new accounting Um, and clearly you need different if not new strategies Um, I say that because Al wrote that bit uh Marnie wrote that bit and um, but I mean I think that's the reason you can see uh, the earlier speaker where we had a rather large organisation run as a partnership uh, you've got to have new strategies for that. So uh, George.
8: Okay, good afternoon to you I'll be as brief as I can but it's a very big subject I'm Going to talk to you about this after- afternoon. But just to introduce myself, uh, going back a long way, I'm, a, I'm one of the boys of Baxter, E.D., and Solomons. Whatever that means, it'll mean a lot to Michael. I don't know if that means a lot to you. But I started, I did LSE, Finance and Accounting, 1954 1957. And uh, that was a great time, as you can imagine. In accounting, with all the Baxter, E.D., and Solomon theories. Then I became an uh, article clerk with a very small firm of uh, accountants in St. Swithin's Lane, G.H. Champness, Cordroy, Beasley and Company, who by chance were just next to Cooper Brothers, who were just uh, down the road. And we had a number of joint audits, including Carreras and uh, uh, the Reed Paper Group. And uh, I then, when I qualified in 1960 as a chartered accountant, I, I was asked by uh, Cooper Brothers, in the form of Piers and Benson, John Piers and Henry Benson, to join the group. Where I stayed for two years in London, and then, as I had a smattering of French, and they just made an agreement with between Cooper Brothers and Librand's of New York. Uh, the first attempt was to create Coopers and Lybrand on the continent, that is. They put me in charge of the offices of Paris, Brussels and Rotterdam where both Cooper brothers and Lybrand had offices, but very small offices. My job was to merge these two offices in each country. So that was my first uh, experience, great big experience of, of creating partnerships. Uh, so I stayed with the uh, Coopers for Coopers and Leibrand in Paris for something like eight years and then I managed to get a job because I wanted to become a, operational with a firm called uh, Schlamberger Limited Oil Prospection and Electronics, whose main purpose in those days, which was 90, the 1970s where if we looked forward 30 years there'd be no more need for petrol So we went into electronics, and I was responsible for acquisitions. So there again, I had great experience, if you like, all over the world, many, many, many countries of uh, creating creating partnerships and integrations. (coughs) Then uh, they wanted me to go to New York, which I didn't want to do, and I joined another big American firm called Otis Elevator. And uh, there again, I did something like 80 acquisitions, Uh, in six years then they wanted me to go to Sweden which I didn't want to do and I started my own firm called Corporate Development International with a Swede who lived in Brussels and we started off with two offices and uh, I retired from that firm uh, seven years ago and there were 50 offices I left them with 50 offices and now there are 58 offices called Corporate Development International CDI Global specialized purely in M&A, uh, that is, searching for business partners, financial partners, and buyers in case of sale. So if you like, I've had a considerable experience in, uh, in this field. I just uh, want to say on one of the points that uh, one of the most important things, of course, is what happens when the partnership that once been created uh, goes through. Because as you know, 70-80% to fail. And they fail because there hasn't been sufficient preparation at the uh, social, the personnel level. So the essential thing in making any uh, merger, acquisition, strategic alliance, or just alliance, uh, is really to focus on what happens once the ink is dry on the agreement. That's the important thing. Now, I... In my work as a
2: consultant, George, you really got to move on to the. It's now,
8: I'm now moving on. Okay. Because now, likewise, in my work as a consultant, okay, I, st- I came across a new activity uh, two years ago, and that is uh, the uh, um, dismantling of aircraft at the end of their commercial life, and the dismantling process involves recycling and uh, recycling and resale and usage of, uh, of aeroplane, aeroplanes. And from that I've entered into with a, a friend of mine who is very important in this field. This, this process is going through at the moment with uh, the French group called Vinci. And uh, by the way I live in France so. So, um, yes, this is going through, but it has created a considerable interest in myself and people around me in what to do in the dismantling process. And that's what I want to talk to you about a little bit. When I was here and I spoke about this with Al uh, around the early December, I immediately afterwards went to the uh, bookshop around the corner to Waterstones and said well, I'm going to buy some books on uh, the um, circular economy because this is what this subject is all about the circular economy there was nothing except one little tiny book on uh, the circular economy called the circular economy which is published which was published in Beijing and, uh, but in an English version I ordered it and I still haven't had it so I'm still waiting for it. Otherwise, nothing has been published on circular economy, in, uh, which is available in, uh, in the UK, and just one book in France. I want to, we are giving them publicity, but the person who has been most important in the circular economy, and I think it's something very important because I'm going to end up with the impact on management accounting, finance, and insurance which is the key to everything, of course, is by the Ellen MacArthur uh, Foundation. They have a book, which I got very recently, which came out three weeks ago, called A New Dynamic, Effective Business in a Circular Economy. It's a really excellent book. But even better is one that came out just last week in France, called L'Economie Circulaire, which is also very good and very, very well presented on all the problems and the risks involved. Now, I've prepared for this, we'll go through it very quickly, if you like. Um, where's, where's the... That's right, that's when we start off. Okay, uh, the circular economy. This is a, a, a notion which existed 150 years ago, 100 years ago, 50 years ago, but has dropped in the last 50 years and is now coming back. It's now really coming back. For a number of reasons, the reasons which I'll explain to you. So uh, we'll go into uh, What's this. That's right. What? Sorry, right, I, I. Ah no. Where, where are you? You've put the wrong one on. I told you it's, it's the third line, not the second. The second line is in French. I'm sorry, it's the third line. I think the third. The third slide there. I we think are.
5: that this one was it's the same one. No, 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 I told you. It was. Like this, well it is this, that's the third one. And it's the same. So I'll double check for
3: you.
5: I mean, I can talk to you in French if you
8: like, but I think we'll try and do it in, uh, in English. Let's try this other the third
1: one. line. Not the. F- okay. Well, the right, today. Thank you.
8: Thank you. So today, what what are the problems? We're in a crisis period all over the world. Lower mineral raw materials, decrease in fossil energy. Of course, that's very important. Uh, environment. We're not talking about uh, shale gas at the moment, but uh, that is something that goes the other way. Environmental crisis, pollution, waste. That's waste. The big problem of waste. Fisheries. We have a big problem there. Agricultural crisis everywhere and a population crisis well I'll split that one so this at the moment is what we can call the linear economy as compared to the uh, circular economy so this is very very, it's a very simple thing, you all recognise it we have the natural resources they're extracted, they're manufactured a component assembly product assembly, distribution utilisation and waste we have two wastes well, there's industrial waste and consumer waste. And all of this is caused united together by energy. Circular economy is the basis of a new paradigm applied to a local territorial scale, requiring transversality, trade flows, waste recycling and sourcing of biomaterials. In the and you'll read more and more about the circular economy in future, because it's becoming very, very important when I tell you that all the big companies are really involved, Unilever, Renault, uh, Total, they all have departments in circular economy, which are uh, all writing papers on this. And So there are three things which you have to remember, that uh, the circular economy is really effective when it's local. So it has the territorial aspect, local loops. When it's transversal, Uh, When, for example, companies sell excess steam power for packaging material, and traceability, which is also something absolutely essential uh, when you're working in this field. So this is a very interesting thing. We go round and round like the PW one as well. Okay. well, if you look at it, you can see that it goes round and round, and this has given rise to a new definition called cradle-to-cradle. Cradle-to-cradle no, okay? uh, cradle cradle means it's an eternal restarting. Re, uh, an eternal, so it's a, so everything goes round and round, and only 6% approximately, which is down here, the déchet uh, ultimo. Residual final waste that, can, that can't be used. Let's take an aeroplane, for example, which I'm extremely you're involved in.
2: Well. We've got to fit in. Okay, the well, let's, start let's,
8: start. let's talk, and if there's any room there's time left over, I'll continue. Yeah, fine. Or I'll continue
1: well, well, doing
2: Can you okay. go until take, you're welcome to sum me up to 10 2. To. Quarter 2 now.
1: Okay, well, okay, okay. Uh,
8: okay. Anyway, I think the best thing is that Could I just be- show you the slides. And if, let's go all through, all through them and then talk about real problems for management, accounting, etc. And then we can talk about the later, okay? The, the key characteristics of the circular economy, okay? A thematical approach, there again, this is something very important. The answers to issues are really urgent. How do we transform? How do the big companies and small companies go from a circular economy, extraction, production destruction to a circular economy, which gives a lot of uh, great advantages in, in terms of uh, finance and employment. I want to give you just one example very very quickly of a big project I'm working on in Spain at the moment. This is a uh, disused airfield, okay, which uh, is on something like 1,300 uh, square acres. And uh, we have different areas: academic, uh, industrial, aeronautical, this recycling areas in that which uh, we're working on. And in this area, all companies will be working together. Okay, logistics and CO2, of course, this is a big problems, Okay, industrial energies. Well, basically, yesterday the world was organic and recycled. Today, we're throwing a lot away. Tomorrow's economy will be like the past, circular. or won't be, but it will be, of course. Now, one more minute, two more minutes to go. The important aspects from a management accounting point of view is that in a circular economy, there is very little cash. It's often exchange of products, which means a completely new theory of mental accounting has to be developed now and very soon as to the control and um, accounting for uh, um, non-financial products, intangibles, because because companies will be uh, um, exchanging assets which have no financial value. Yet there will be an important risk element because of the responsibility, taking the, the medical field or agricultural fields, there will be an, uh, an important risk element, and so there's a whole new area of risk which has to be developed. And from the financial point of view, it's also going to be very, very important that uh, when one raises finance, this is something that has to be put over to the bankers. A lot of banks are already involved in this and are also concerned. But it's something that has to be uh, negotiated and discussed, that when you're raising finance for non-financial operations, uh, it's not so easy. That's what I'm going to say at the moment. I'm at 10. If if you want me to continue, if the other people haven't got too much to say, I can always come back on something.
2: I I think, yes. I I was going to say, George has actually done very well in getting the idea the cost, but I think he probably set himself an impossible task in fifteen minutes. I do think he really requires another crack. Please, thank
3: you. thank you.
8: I need my my USB in in case. Yes, oh, have yeah.
3: you got one? No, 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 no.
2: Okay.
3: I'm just going to use words. Uh, <laughs> Uh, And they're probably a little too simple. Um, Let's come back to business strategy. What is a business? Really, what is a business? It's a thing you need a separate strategy for. It comes up over and over again in the texts, doesn't it? Wherever there's a gap in the chain of substitutes you have to do something different because the customers want something different. And if you don't, there are competitors out there who will give the customers what they want. A strategy is something you need because there are opponents and you've got to change your strategy when the opponents change or when your strategy isn't working or when the business changes. So, um, you can have simple strategies, complex strategies. You can have lateral strategies. At this stage in the chain, we're all retailers. We're little and all the competing against Morrisons or whatever at that level. You can have vertical strategies where you decide that you're you are you going to go into... Uh, exploration at one end and uh, gas stations at the other or you're going to get out of shipping in the middle uh, so you've you got a two level operation or you can have multinational strategies you can have competitors who are in different extents in different markets uh, and you decide which market you go into in what ways They've got multinational strategies. Yeah, there these three dimensions. If you want to put them all in together, you can. But it is a little difficult to think of them all at the same time. And it's really very difficult to model them. You, you'll have the computer going for a year or two if you try to model most businesses internationally. BP tried it once. They reversed the whole thing, actually. Um, Maybe they should have kept it going. Who knows? Anyway, um, I'm d- I'll just talk about a simple strategy in a minute. Um, there are, whatever the game, competitively, there's different type of strategy. The different type of strategy in chess than there is in Monopoly or in Mahjong, which I was brought up on. Uh, you've got competitors, you've got different moves and you've got to envisage the moves as many steps ahead as you can, preferably more than your competitors. So what you're trying to do is go ahead, sometimes nine steps. I used to be quite amazed at how few steps MBA students at London Business School would take in cases. One of the greatest educational achievements was trying to them to get four steps rather than three, the five steps rather than four, the six steps. A great chess player sees the game and the the changing of the board and holds it in their mind. Now, can you do that with your business strategy? That's the important thing. Uh, what are the elements? for the business strategy. Uh, first one is the mix of things that you're offering customers, people who are going to take from you whether, whatever you're offering, a service or a product or something. Um, the second is the capacity you hold because that costs, you have know, low capacity but have the same offering. And the third is your liquidity. Their strategy involves those three elements always. Whatever you're doing now is your strategy until you change it. Strategy isn't just what you plan to do. It is how you are confronting the competition. Ideally, it's how I will confront it step by step by step into the future and win. Um, now, there are certain things that follow from those three elements of a business strategy um, are their consequences. One is that you minimize cost for whatever strategy you're pursuing. You don't try and maximize cost or let it go halfway. You try and minimize cost for that strategy. Therefore Michael Porter was quite wrong when he said cost minimization was a strategy. Well, he tended to pick titles and so they are strategies, rather than look at the elements of the strategy. Um, titles are like, always by railway stations, or uh, always move your right pawn, or something like that. that, that that's, that's not a strategy. Maybe a name, that's all. Uh, so... Um, that's the first consequence, is it's cost minimization. The second is that if you're trying to maximise value, you'll acquire a competitor when the present value of the competitor is less, is more than you will have to pay for it. So whenever you can take a competitor over, you do. So you've got to be watching that as part of your strategy. And the last consequence is that you will sell to a competitor if you can get the greatest present value from doing that rather than waiting. Now most businesses get sold. If somebody puts a strategy before you and doesn't show that they've thought about when the sales should come about, or whether you should buy a competitor at some point, they haven't really thought it through. It's like giving you half the chess game and not watching what the, what the knight's doing. Coming back to the question then, when we, we come up with a new alliance, does our strategy change? A new alliance is a change in the competitive structure, it's a change in the game. That you entered into a new alliance. So you must change your strategy. What would fit before won't be the best now. It won't produce the highest present value for you. And that's your objective in business. So I, I see it as an open and shut case. The question that was put to us we should change our strategies as soon as an alliance comes along. Now, There is one possibility, of course, that the alliance isn't seen as a commercial activity in the sense that um, we've entered into an alliance, we're going to get supplies from it and the competitors going to get supplies from it. So it is not actually um, a competitive alliance, it's just a joint supply. In that case, maybe your your um, strategy doesn't need to change, but usually strategies change every time a competitor changes their their strategy. You see the game changing? you have to change. now the last issue is should accounting change? Well, you know. Strategic management accounting, which i 've been thumping the table <laughs> on for since one thousand nine hundred and eighty i 'm um, uh, claiming every new strategy requires an accounting for it. How do we know it 's a good strategy? we don 't calculate its value. How do we calculate its value if we don 't put it into accounting terms? And lastly. Accounting records tend to be based on non-strategic elements like how we make the product or where it is made or what it is generally called. Is it a table or a chair? We cost it differently instead of in terms of the strategic businesses we have. my argument, I think, is that we should be changing our our management accounting every time that we see that we have a new business here because we need a new strategy. When you need a separate strategy, you've got a separate business. You've got a separate business because they're a separate group of customers Competitors are offering something new to, or you have decided to offer something new to, then you need to account for it separately. And usually that will happen when there's a new alliance. Thank you.
2: Five minutes.
1: Well, it's very challenging for me to come up here after listening to. These clever people, and, uh, and there's one to follow. So, what you're going to get is a fairly simple approach to all this. And I think I'm going to try and return to the sort of question I thought I was being asked, which may have been different. But um, <laughs> what is a strategic alliance? Now, Henry talked quite a bit this morning about this, and I'm not going to repeat what he said, obviously, but. Um, A definition by Whelan and Hanger back in 2000 was it's an agreement between firms to do business together in ways that go beyond normal company-to-company dealings but fall short of a merger. So in other words, they've got a common purpose in some way. And why are they formed? And again, I mean, very quickly, just to remind you what Henry said, to grow, to obtain advantages of existing technologies or new technologies, reduce cost, reduce risk, Maybe to obtain some sort of competitive advantage. Now, alliances are not simple things to make work. And the reasons that they can fall into difficulty is that there may be a clash of cultures, a lack of trust between the partners, lack of clear goals and objectives. And I think that's quite a critical issue and probably is a significant reason for any failures that I might achieve. Lack of coordination between management teams. ...different operating procedures are incompatible with each other. And obviously a lot of the risk issues that that Henry mentioned this morning. So how does that sort itself out? Well, you need to have some decent governance structures in place. Senior management commitment. It's not a job just to hand down to the junior staff and tell them to get on with it. There's got to be committed emotional leadership and involvement. It doesn't mean that the alliances are equal in resource input but there should be very significant and equal commitment to the project, whatever it may be. Ideally, management would have similar philosophies. They need to be strong and effective. There needs to be a good performance management system to feedback how this alliance is going. Is it achieving the goals that it's set out? Everybody needs to understand what it is they're trying to achieve. Um, communications need to be good. So... How do we go about doing that? Well, I guess there's a whole range of tools and things that may be out there. But if we go back to the sort of presentation that Faulkner and I did a little bit earlier, a framework might be a good option. Henry mentioned this morning the the work that Kaplan, Norton and Rugglesson did. Now, they were talking about a pharmaceutical company and a clinical trials company, which uh, wanted to form an alliance. Um, They were already in, in, in business and what they did was they started off by setting down their own strategy maps independently. And unsurprisingly, they weren't very clever because they were not joined up. So they sorted that out, I guess, with the help of our friends in Harvard. And they actually developed a framework, a strategy map, which actually mapped down what the two organisations were trying to achieve. And set down some clear objectives, set out some KPIs, and said, this is what we're trying to do, and put the emotional and leadership commitment into this project. And as a consequence of that particular piece of work, they saved, I think it was in the region of 40% costs just by doing that, and that was one of their purposes. So frameworks have been around for about 20-odd years, but there's a reason for that, is that they can work if you make them work. So just to finish off then, accounting, and, and Ken's just talked about changing accounting methodologies every time he set up a new business. Well, if this framework is setting down the outcomes required from this alliance, then it only makes sense to suggest that outcome costing and budgeting would be a solution to this new accounting methods, and we're here ready to help. So there we are. Thanks very much.
2: Final five minutes.
9: I'll, I'll keep my comments brief on my interpretation of the question that we received, um, which may be a little bit different again. And I was struggling with the idea of the question, actually, do, new, do strategic alliances suggest new strategies? And I have no clue what it means. Do they suggest new strategies or do they actually enable or facilitate new strategies for organizations? And that's, that's sort of the thought I, w- I was having in terms of that if you consider strategy in a conventional sense, and I think Professor Simmons talked about it quite a lot earlier on, but if you, if you see it as, as a way or a path that the firm is seeing how to dedicate its resources to achieving some objectives that it has and the way it wants to allocate those resources of the organization – uh, to create some, some level of competitive success, you may sort of decouple, actually, the ownership of resources of the organization from the strategies that they pursue because strategic alliances enable firms to do things that actually, with their own resources, they can't be doing. So in that sense, I was thinking, well, yeah, there is some point in here that they do suggest new strategies for organizations that it, it, it enlarges the scope for the firm to enact strategies that, on their own, they could not be doing. Um, And I I guess one one very nice example I always like is IBM in the uh, research and development of Semiconductor um, and where it's competing quite effectively still with IBM, while IBM has just a very tiny sort of budget relative to Intel in terms of the investments that it wants to dedicate in tooling and experimentation for new sort of uh, geographic spaces of uh, semiconductors, and uh, so the, the the distances between sort of transistors on a chip decreasing and decreasing and decreasing over time. Capital investments increasing enormously. If you think about the whole budget that IBM has for the whole business of semiconductor, it's equal to the R and D budget that Intel has for doing that. So you see that IBM is quite successful in the whole constellation with alliance partners in pooling together the resources that they have, the knowledge that they have, the engineers, the R and D people that they have of Qualcomm, Broadcom, NVIDIA, uh, mentioned them, Samsung. So it's a whole constellation of firms that actually pull together the resources to keep sort of competition alive in that industry and be able to effectively compete against a large player like Intel. So in that sense, you may consider sort of alliances as a way to enact strategies that a firm could never in this case, a afford, like IBM on its own. Now, of course, I guess when you, when you have some enabling parts by pooling assets of organizations together, it may also lead to some constraining parts. On the other hand, where you may see that actually pooling resources of the organization with an alliance partner may actually constrain them in strategies that they could have pursued on their own, but that are now tied up in an alliance that they cannot sort of take out that, that easily anymore. I think the Volkswagen Suzuki was a nice example of Suzuki now being constrained in its strategic actions because of its partnership with uh, Volkswagen. But also in successful alliances like Renault and Nissan, which I think has been one of the, uh, the uh, success stories in the automotive industry in terms of how, how companies are aligning together and pooling their assets to create a larger scale than each of these firms is having on their own. I think they're producing about 6 million cars per year together. Uh, when about, I think, the end of the 90s, beginning 2000, that Renault stepped into sort of the, the difficult circumstances that, uh, that Nissan was, per- that, that they were facing, that they set up the relationship on an equal basis, even though at that, that point in time, financially, they were very unequal partners. And they've actually grown into a very successful alliance where the principle has always been win-win between the parties and that any of the actions that one of these parties is taking must not be harmful to the profits or the competitive position of the others. And that's where you actually see a successful alliance is putting some constraints on the strategies that each of these firms is able to enact because they cannot engage into particular strategic actions that would actually be harmful to one of their business partners. So I guess in that sense... You may consider strategic alliances to open up the space and also to constrain, to some extent, the space for strategy uh, development of organizations uh, that, they, uh, that they would not have been able to do without those alliances. So the second part of the question, I think there are actually two questions in, in there, what are the consequences for accounting, or do they suggest new accounting, uh, is, is a, difficult, a difficult one as well in terms of, well, do we expect the accounting itself to change or to differ Or do we actually expect the questions around accounting to differ? And if you think about sort of the IBM case again, where we have an example of companies pooling all their intellectual resources, their patents their engineers and R&D people into a common facility in East Fishkill in, in New York, where they basically make agreements in terms of, well, this is what we're going to work on to be competing with Intel on this technology roadmap for the future. Uh, the question would actually be, well, what is actually the value of the resources that we're putting in there together? How do we actually evaluate our joint of assets that we dedicate, how do we evaluate the outcomes of highly specific technology development that is highly uncertain, how do we allocate costs and benefits between the partners of these organizations uh, when we have so much uncertainty, what it is actually that they contribute and that they get out of there. I think there's also a stream of literature in accounting that has looked at questions in terms of are firms actually willing to share cost information with each other, and the more competitive their stance is towards each other, the more difficult it gets actually to to share sort of sensitive accounting information, Um, and in some cases it may be essential to be more effective in the coordination with each other. So how do we actually overcome hurdles? of organizations to be willing to share and open the books towards each other and show the cost and performance information of the organization that would enable them to identify improvement opportunities, for instance. Uh, there's been a, it's been a quite interesting experiment, actually, a couple of years ago that was published in terms of a contrast between participants of the experiment having to negotiate with each other as buyers and suppliers where some of the participants got crude accounting information, traditional cost information, um, which was mostly in terms of quantities, not financially priced quantities. And some of the participants got total cost of ownership type information, which was based on activity-based costing, superior kind of information to make better decisions with each other on how to improve the joint efforts in the value chain, And what came out of that experiment was actually that those that were having bad information were willing to share it, that those that were having much better information were less willing to share it. So there's a paradox there that the value of information that firms may have can improve their competitive opportunities together. At the same time, that value of information is something they may want to hold close to their chest and not open their cards towards each other. So uh, I promise to keep it brief. I'll just, just close my comments here, and I think it would be nice to have some uh, comments from the audience. Okay. Um,
2: it's now your turn. Uh, I don't think you necessarily have to answer. Well, you may have the answer to the question, in which case that's very good. Um, alternatively, you may comment or whatever. And one of the comments you might want to think about is... Do accountants have much to do with strategy? I mean, we heard earlier today the PWC person saying, well, a lot of his time is spent on strategy. But many he never actually said what that meant or what he did. And almost all um, finance directors and so on say that. But again, you worry. And some empirical evidence suggests that basically um, accountants provide some numbers. The strategy, but that's it. They don't get very involved in decision making. Clearly, I'm sure you all work for organisations, uh, well, apart from universities, which don't have strategies, um, uh, 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 overcome this problem. Okay, who would like to ask? Uh, do mention who you are, please. Who would like to start us?
7: Good afternoon, Simon Priest, Charter Certified Accountant. Employed by the MOD. Um, in the lines of uh, strategic alliance, I was thinking along the lines of well, the m- main starting point, it would be the planning stage. I don't think one can really have any proper lines of any organization, whether it be a PFI, in other words, a government organization along with an industry partner, or, for example, that you came across between the Japanese company and the German company Volkswagen. I think looking at the later, the German company and Volkswagen, one needs to look at the culture of these two organisations. You're looking at two different countries with two different sets of people, with different cultures and customs. And before one can really get into a marriage between the two, one would have to look at, understand each other's culture and customs bef- and plan. And I think it's at the planning stage where possibly that alliance failed. So I think it's looking at the... Companies, organisations, culture, and customs, and the country's concern at their individual psyche. Thank you.
2: One more. John, John Ferguson. I'm currently involved in the charity sector. Um, but if I relate back to my own time in certain joint ventures, multicultural joint ventures,
9: Having gone into them at different stages, be that at inception or, or sort of midlife life or end of life, I'm particularly interested, and it's perhaps more, Henry, in your field of research, as to what you might have found as being the trigger conditions that cause a rupture in the relationship at different stages, particularly behavioural factors that get involved with changes of staff, key staff, on, on two sides. Okay.
2: Um, basically, here are two things, really. One is planning is essential. Two is what sort of things trigger the, the, the um, partnerships or associations not to work. Maybe with two comments. Oh, there you are.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well... Um, I think planning clearly is essential and I think that's where developing the joint strategy is the starting point of any of this and, and, and I think that's, you know, we, we go back to the discussions we had with, with sort of joining bodies together in the government structure that there has to be some common purpose and, and, and having a framework which allows you to start formulating that process whatever framework that might be is a good place to be it starts asking the questions that need to be answered. Why are we doing this? What are we going to know what success looks like? And what how long is it going to take? What are the expectations? So it's all about managing the outcome from the process that's been set up to do that. Rupturing um, something I really I mean, I haven't really got involved in this, I'm not going to comment too much on this, other than to suggest that breakdown right of trust is going to be a clear, clear reason for that or lack of resource which wasn't properly planned into the activity in the first place I imagine are two key reasons for
3: that Well, I think um, you go into coalitions to add value each partner wants to add value
2: Does this apply to politics?
3: Yes, it applies to marriage too Yes. Yeah? Uh, uh, but you know the strange thing is there's six competitors at any one point in time one of the competitors is probably gaining on all the others so the present value of all but that one is going down and one is going up unless the whole market is expanding but then that probably would have been in present value calculations anyway The point is that very, very often one firm finds that in the coalition it's actually losing. Its value is going down as a result of it. And so they find an excuse to break it up. And their management accountant should be putting his finger on that earlier rather than later.
8: George? Well, the important thing is people. It's nice to have plans on paper... But you've got to get the adhesion of, of the people with you, whom you're going to be working. Remember, in a strategic alliance, it should be fairly equal. It shouldn't be too much of an, an imbalance. So it's the way that companies handle their respective uh, staff, which is terribly important, in my opinion. And if things don't uh, work out, then the whole thing just collapses because it's only people that make it work. So uh, the, the, uh, the personnel manager, management side, has to be very, very involved in the way uh, the alliance is going to work together.
9: Yeah, I think uh, I think in sort of the connection between planning and people, and you, you mentioned the Kaplan Norton and Ruggleson study in a bit more detail, and one of the nice uh, nice elements that they give to. Uh, or the thinking about how structuring and socialization in, in some sense are related, is that one of the criticisms is actually that often you see that alliances are established at high-level management, that plans are designed at high-level management, advisors are brought in, consultants are brought in to set up the structures to work within, and then they hand it over to actually those that are going to execute the alliance. So the question is, well, how is actually the commitment maintained of the people within the alliance if they were not involved there in the first place? So who are actually the key persons that we want to have in there that should be sort of showing the leadership of within this alliance versus is it something that is clearly distinguishable in a strategic phase and an execution phase where we just drop it in people's laps? So I think that's one of the, one of the key sort of comments that they gave and why failure may be so... Uh, so critical within the, uh, within the alliance space, uh, commitment levels of people should be high in that sense. I think your question in particular had to do with something on when we have very large divergence between organizational or, or national cultures of the organizations that we are embedded in, and then over the stages of, of an alliance, how may that work out? I'm not really familiar with how much research has been done in that area on how to manage it, but I think some of the studies point out a socialization as one of the most important elements, actually, that people get familiar with each other's preferences, each other's understandings, and understanding that equality within Volkswagen may be a different concept than equality within Suzuki. And once we get to the point of understanding, actually, those different perceptions we already may anticipate to, uh, to some extent actually problems that may emerge over time because of behavioural factors so. mm.
2: I, I was involved a while ago now in uh, uh, well not involved but looking uh, at a cha- three charities that merged, tried, wanted to merge and um, basically what seemed to happen there was that they all had very different views as to how the charity should proceed and who they should help and so on. And most of the time was spent on trying to get make that consistent. They hired a professional uh, charity person who um, then produced some numbers. Those numbers justified the merger coming out of your ears, you know, very strongly. And uh, basically, uh, when a year or so had passed, you realised that that's exactly what it was. What it was, was the three people of the charities wanted to merge enormously. Um, the numbers were produced to um, persuade others that the numbers were... That they, that was a good idea as well, in financial terms. And after you look at it at all, you find the numbers had nothing whatsoever to do with real life. And um, one's now in a sort of situation where the charity, the, chari- the merged charity, does tend to share values, uh, but whether it will now s- financially survive or not is another question. Um, so, you know, it's not all nice sort of structures and things. <coughs> people as you said earlier people are enormously important uh, often you don't realise just how important they are you know you don't realise that these three uh, chairmen of the charity, uh, charities had actually spent a vast amount of time together coming up with a sort of common view and then one shouldn't trust the numbers anyway some more questions Please, comments, sir.
5: Uh, Rick Payne, ICAW. Um, We hear a lot about trust, and I think quite rightly in these alliances, but a word that comes up less, and I'm wondering about its relationship, is fairness. And I think there's this sort of, certainly in my experience in Britain, fairness is a term that comes up quite a lot. And we tend to have an in- internal bias that um, our contribution is greater and what we're getting out is less than someone else if there's a distance between us. So I wondered if it was worth exploring fairness as opposed to trust, or whether it's just a subset of trust, whether that term is a useful way of looking at strategic alliances.
2: One more to go with that? Yeah, I suppose so. Why not?
4: Sorry, Michael, it's going to be Malcolm again. Um, it strikes, having, having been through a number of um, various alliances and joint ventures in my life with various companies, it strikes me that the critical thing, and something which they will always fail if you don't get, is commonality of objectives. I'm going back to the first point I made with, with, with Henry. Um, and that leads me on to think that you know capacity... To, there are t- quite a few things in, in, in this question... But I think the capacity to form strategic alliances does in its own right open up new strategies. And as strategic alliances change, as technology changes, there will be new strategies. But it seems to me that if if when you're looking at an individual strategic alliance, if you haven't worked out your strategy before you enter into the alliance, you are almost doomed to fail. So that in that sense, once you've got the strategic alliance, trying to suggest new strategies is putting the cart a long, long way before the horse but I, I wanted to go on from that because I think when we go into accounting there's an issue which has been raised that um, it's the, the issue's been raised that one of the objectives of, of these alliances or maybe the objective in one or two cases was maximising shareholder value and I think that's quite a dead objective I think it's a past objective I think the world is actually now looking for more objectives than that that actually that, that social responsibility demands wider objectives and I'm not sure we've actually got there yet, so I'd suggest that not so much the, the alliances themselves require new accounting, but actually the way the world in which those alliances operate is demanding new accounting. And it's something I think we've got to get to over the next few years, because I've, I really don't like this idea of saying what we're looking for is maximising shareholder value. I, I think that's a dead objective. You,
3: you added the word shareholder. I said maximising value how you break up the distribution of the value is another issue
4: how you define the value is another issue and that's no, going to no, require more no, accounting
3: no no in a in a uh, business competitive business situation what you're trying to do is maximize the value of that unit for which you're building a strategy The the present value of the total sum of cash that can be pulled out over time, whether it goes to shareholders or employees or whatever, is. uh, uh, Oh, okay. (laughs) But that's what we're here for, to argue with.
2: Yes, well, uh, trust. And is that the same thing as fairness? And does, does fairness matter separately? And, you know, really, in many ways, how do we um, bring together or look at, monitor the objectives of a, a wider range, sorry, a wider range of objectives than just maximising shareholder value? Where are we? George, would you like to say anything? Not particularly. Right.
9: Yes. <laughs> I, I, I guess I would see this as different... Constructs, trust and fairness, and generally, I think, in the psychology, psychology studies, fairness is seen as a critical antecedent of trust uh, related to the notion of sort of justice between parties that when we feel that we've been treated just by another, that it is a breeding ground for trust to develop in that sense. Uh, your question made me think a little bit about a paper actually published some, some 12 years ago by Cyril Tompkins in Accounting Organization Society who was talking about that actually when you think about an alliance, it doesn't necessarily mean if we have equality that they also face equal risks. So what is fair in that sense in the terms of, well, is it actually fair that there's an asymmetric distribution of payoffs out of the alliance to actually have a matching risk-return relationship between them? So what is fair in that sense? Do we expect always 50-50 or must it be some sort of a level Uh, a match between the risk parties are facing. I think risk is is inherently related to trust, so if I feel I'm more exposed to risk uh, for trust to be developed, fairness is critical in that sense. Uh, So I, I guess if trust is an objective in itself for the sustainability of an alliance over time, fairness is maybe something that is critical that we can manage. And in that sense, accounting information may be important to increase the transparency uh, of actually what's happening between parties and behaviors and outcomes, and if they're being rewarded in a fair manner. So, yeah, absolutely.
2: King, okay, you had a go. Do you know? Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> the life of a firm is very short, usually. Most firms die. If you argue, well, we don't have to look at um, obtaining value, you're actually saying this firm should depart pretty quickly. Now, I understand that there are all sorts of people with interest in firms, but the measurement of value that's being added by that economic unit is absolutely crucial. This is a system we have evolved where firms compete. It stops them becoming monopolies and ripping us off. So uh, I, I, I wouldn't apologise for saying that it is a management accountant's job to measure value and value added and it is very difficult to add value.
2: Right.
1: I guess um, there's a linkage between fairness and clarification of objectives and I think fairness is different from trust in that fairness is a perception of whether you've got what you expected to get out of the, the relationship and that I think comes down to being absolutely clear what it is you expect to get from the outset and if you know what you expect to get, and then subsequently get it, I guess you think you'll be treated fairly. But that comes down to making very clear what those outcomes are going to be between the two partners or however many partners are involved. And I think if that is clearly understood, then you can overcome issues about perceived unfairness and also it helps clarify the objectives. Now, whether value, however is, it is described, it, it is an objective, well, presumably it will be an objective of some description. And Again, that can be laid down at the outset. And let's get these things out of the table before there's any unpleasantness, and then the trust starts to fall away. So I think that's that's the place to be, I just, I and it is about people. I mean, we've heard the people thing. Of course, all this discussion is about people talking to each other and getting it described. And there's no reason, in my view, why the management accountant can't be right in there discussing these things with the knowledge that he or she has. Just
5: this. The objective want to be to the is one part is where down. <coughs>
1: well that's true but then if that's understood what that level is going to be right from the outset? because I mean the, the, I think there's a comment that said that the alliances should be more or less equal Well I would disagree with that providing it's understood what that difference might be and presumably if they're different there may well be a different payoff as well but that's understood
2: Okay. can I thank my panel thank you all for taking part as well thank you